0: idea. Hello, welcome back to Do Something With, a podcast where healthcare students and professionals explore what it takes to do something about the injustices we see in our day-to-day lives. I'm your host, Victoria Ngo, and this is also my way of bringing all that I've learned during medical school with me when I begin residency in a few months. I'm so excited to introduce my guest today, Dr. Steve Crossman. He is a family physician teacher, an award-winning mentor, and an overall extremely thoughtful human who has been a huge part of my family medicine journey. Welcome, Steve.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So I've been doing this thing at the beginning of each episode where I ask every guest to share something that's been bringing them hope.
1: When it comes to hope within healthcare in the United States, that becomes a little bit tricky, but there has been one beacon, I I guess, which is the direct primary care movement. Mm -hmm. Within, you know, direct primary care, it really is kind of exciting and invigorating to see family physicians, primary care physicians, eliminating a lot of the parts of the system that can be really problematic and just going straight to the patients. And, you know, not really talking necessarily concierge, Mm -hmm. talking more the DPC models that focus on providing affordable primary care services to folks, especially in those cases, you know, high deductible insurance plans are around a lot these days, and the DPC model can really facilitate effective, affordable primary care for patients in those settings. I think that's really been the kind of most exciting piece. You know, the ACA was exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, Expansion of Medicaid in Virginia was really exciting. So there are pieces But the DPC movement seems to be the one thing systematically, structurally, that is continuing to gain momentum. When it comes to just in general, you know, it's always inspiring and always a source of hope when you have those individual encounters with patients. And, you know, there's, you know, that piece of the relationship that really clicks or that ability of the patient and the physician to work together to, you know, provide some sort of positive outcome or improvement for the patient. So those always keep you going and provide that little boost when when that happens.
0: Yeah, so I had Sam on. They are my second episode, and they also answered that DPC was bringing them hope because they had just done four weeks with two of the DPC practices in Southside, and I got to meet one of them after recording that episode, and that doctor was telling me about how... In contrary to how some people are using DPC to more like cut out the middleman and maximize their profits, he's using it as a way to control his salary in a way that he feels is equitable in comparison to his employees and his patients. And so he's planning on maintaining his salary like pretty low compared to what I have heard people outside of medicine are getting paid. And it's because, you know, of course he owns this business, but also he's able to change how much he gets paid depending on what he needs. And it's just like a different way of thinking about economy and whatnot. I feel like I have a very visceral anti-DPC reaction based on how I was first introduced to it, but seeing more and more people use it, like our solution doesn't have to be perfect. There can be many different ways to approach it and I'm learning to appreciate that.
1: And if you think about it really, you know, structurally, the DPC model is kind of a microcosm of an HMO, which is kind of a, a microcosm of a single-payer-based system. You know, If you go back to the early, early days in this country of HMOs, it was you know, a, a bunch of people who would pay in a little bit of money every month so that they could have access to sickness care if they were injured or to health care if they needed it the original HMO, you know, started in the nineteen twenties. In LA, the city county employees could pay a dollar fifty a month as kind of a prepaid health plan that they could then uh-huh. access care. It almost seems like we're circling back a hundred years, which I guess is kind of discouraging and disappointing in some ways, but it's also encouraging that we're trying to get back to that pooling resources. Yeah. To provide a coordinated systematic approach to health and wellness.
0: Yeah, sometimes it's just really good to go back to the basics and see where we can go from there. And, you know, thinking about how recently in all my residency interviews, they often always ask, like, why family medicine? And my answer is always that you said that family medicine is the specialty of relationships. And it's just so true. And I really, really believe that. And when I say it, it clicks with my interviewers And I think inherent to being a really, really good family doctor and being really good at relationships is being able to make space for immense nuance. Because all of us are really messy and complex in our humanity. And it's been really fun talking to someone who appreciates that, especially going back to DPC and talking about how it could be a good and bad system depending on how you use it. And there's just so much nuance in that conversation space. So I think it allows you, Steve, specifically to step into spaces and not only limit harm, but also amplify good. Reflecting on all the things you and me and all of my classmates in our family medicine program have talked about, very few things are completely void of good or bad. And I was wondering if you could tell me about something that has helped you appreciate this when you were early in your career, like where we are.
1: Yeah, so to be honest, I was really not good at this early in my career, and I was doing a lot of reflecting a- about why that might have been. And personally, I was struggling with some things with mm-hmm. respect to sexuality and who I was going to be. And you know, early in my career, I'd come out of med school. I'd done well and gotten good grades almost on most of my tests, and and we're still kind of in this mindset that practicing medicine means getting the right answer. Right. And if there's one huge complaint I have about medical education today, it's that we do such a great job of teaching you the wrong thing, right? So we we make you take all these tests and all these exams where there's only one right answer. Yeah. When as you mentioned medicine is almost never one right answer. So it took me a, a, f- a fair amount of time to really appreciate that and I think it really helped when I came more comfortable in my own skin. I'm a lot older than you and you know my coming out was still at a time when you know I very much felt like oh my god if I admit that I'm gay and I come out then I'm going to you know lose all my friends, I'm going to have to make all new friends, I'm going to lose my family. It's going to be this all or nothing thing. Yeah. So when I finally got over that, I think it really allowed me to start being able to accept and value and and see the different shades of gray. And it's not all or nothing. One of my residency faculty, I quote him all the time. I remember him saying, nothing is ever, always, or never. (laughs) And for whatever reason. I mean, he was a dermatologist. He wasn't even core faculty. He taught our our little dermatology clinic, and he just said that over and over, and it really sunk in. And I kind of say that to myself, I think, a lot when I feel like I'm losing that ability. And I was shocked when my topic for the podcast was nuance. I I think, you know, when I think of nuance, I think of subtlety and variations of shades of gray. And I, I think that if you ask most people, they would not associate that word with me. Really? Uh, sometimes i have told I don't have, really have a subtle bone in my body.
0: Okay, that's fair.
1: You know, I, I think I can be pretty much opinionated about things. But the more I re- kind of reflected on it, I think those two things can exist
0: <laughs>
1: together as well. You know, I can have pretty strong opinions and believe things pretty firmly. And hopefully, I'm way better at it now, be able to understand that there's almost never a single right answer for something
0: yeah this would be the first time since starting this podcast that i've remembered that nuance also kind of means like a subtle difference and i think it's because in all the episodes so far we've tried really hard to be able to hold two things at once and i think in the conversation we can explain it we can speak out our thoughts and kind of help people follow along what we're thinking But something I've noticed is that between episodes, I'll say something contradictory or the advice will be seemingly in conflict with each other. When in reality, like you said, everything has a place and it's like more both and than either or. That's why I wanted to talk to you specifically near the end of this lesson plan of mine to really hammer home that, you know, even if listening to everything so far sounds kind of like no clear answer, it's because there isn't, right? And I think that I have spent five, six years in therapy to learn this both and not either or thing, just constantly being dinged by a therapist and saying, no, that's black and white thinking. Can you hold a space where both are true or somewhere in the middle and whatnot? But I think it takes a day for me to lose it in a really hard day in the clinic or in the hospital. And I just get really angry and whatnot. So... Can you think of a time when you were maybe near the end of your residency where you were learning all these lessons and learning how to stick with this mindset?
1: Thinking back to residency, that is challenging. And I don't know if I really fully got there
0: Uh within residency.
1: If I think back to kind of when I started to feel like I could be more comfortable in this zone of uncertainty even and possibility and speculation, it probably wasn't until I was a few years into practice. Mm -hmm. I worked in a rural small town community health center Mm -hmm. as part of a payback for a scholarship in Virginia. And it was a really interesting time, place and experience for me. This was in the the late nineties. Okay. And this was Virginia. It was small town, rural Virginia. And one of the very most interesting things that I experienced in that community, I was also a medical examiner. Mm. The doctors in our practice served as county medical examiners. Wow. One thing I learned pretty quickly was that in this community, there were black funeral homes and there were white funeral homes and You know, if we're talking about black and white and holding space for both, this was one piece of the community that seemed, in my experience, to be very black and white still. Our population was primarily black or white. We had a few Latinx patients. And just living in the community for those years and experiencing some of that racial divide and seeing where it still existed like within the funeral homes yeah and then seeing places where it really didn't seem to exist as much in other interpersonal or or social environments felt impactful to me at the time that contrasting and getting my legs under me as a physician not a resident and having those experiences where despite my knowledge and my access to textbooks and resources and my access to really smart colleagues like we couldn't find an answer like there wasn't an answer i think those pieces in combination helped build that comfort because it's really uncomfortable to begin with as a young physician not being able to find the answer and now now I'm very comfortable saying I don't know to my patients. <laughs> I say it all the time. I don't know. Yeah. And let's see what we can do to try to figure it out. The other thing that happened about the end of those three years was I ended up circling back to this idea of Michael Ballant, mm-hmm. who was involved in the 50s in England, working with general practitioners and helping them better use their doctor patient relationship to help patients who were otherwise very unclear very challenging symptoms that didn't get better symptoms that could never really be fully diagnosed and i think that that was kind of the piece getting involved with ballant group work in the states and the the entire focus is on speculation really yeah and trying to collect A large number of possible explanations, possible realities that might be contributing to what's going on in the relationship. So it's it's never about finding a single right answer. And so if you spend enough time guessing and speculating about what might be going on, you know, you just have to be more comfortable not knowing and being open to investigating and considering and reconsidering always with the goal of doing what you can through this process to better help that patient who's with you or that you're with in the encounter. But yeah, I I wasn't very good at it by the end of residency. It, It took a few more years.
0: But I'm hearing a very concrete tool that you've been taught and you teach to speculate so many different possibilities. And reflecting on my own experiences of when I've had a difficult interaction with a patient. And I always leave thinking, did I say something? Did they have a bad day? Did something go on? Recently, I went into a patient's room and it was a pediatric clinic. And I walked in and I said, oh, hey, is this so-and-so? Does so-and-so have a nickname? And she seemed really angry. She was like, no, I gave him that name on purpose. Like, why would you ask that? What else would I call him? And his name was a very standard name with a very standard nickname that we often use. And so I was just caught off guard and I wasn't sure where this came from. And I thought, oh, did I say something wrong? Did something else happen? But I just got through the rest of the encounter. I left and then she left before the attending even came. And I thought, oh my gosh, I have ruined everything. This kid really needed help. It took like six months to get this appointment. And I asked for a nickname and now the mom has left because I said something terrible. But then I heard the nurse say that she thought that maybe it was her fault because she had this strange interaction with her. And then another nurse also thought it was her fault because she had a strange interaction with her. And all of us are like what's going on? And whose fault was it, basically? And the next time I was in clinic, it turned out that the staff was just so uncomfortable with not knowing why and what had happened. They just straight up called her and asked. She had a very reasonable explanation. And it just reminded me that It shouldn't take us calling a patient afterward to debrief an interaction when really if at the beginning we just held space where maybe we did say something wrong, but also maybe we didn't. And the best we could do is just try and be mindful of how we interact with others from that point on. And I think because it was not a system space, it was like an individual interaction that was much harder for me to hold nuance for.
1: You know, when you can say, oh, well, you know, if the system were only better, then this would be better. But when you're stuck with, oh, wait, to make this better, I have to be better. Yeah. Obviously, you feel that a lot more personally and strongly because it's you. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's harder because we can be better. You know, we can't always fix the scheduling system or the patient appointment center. But we certainly have the power to change ourselves. And it's definitely... Not an easy one. I think the key thing, though, is owning that fact, right? Yeah. Owning the piece of it that I can do better. Yeah. It's kind of a two-edged sword, though, because if you internalize that too much and accept blame, then it can be really inhibitory and, gosh, demoralizing. And, of course, if you deflect and externalize it completely, then you never grow and you, you never have the opportunity to be better. Yeah. And that's really hard, you know, that internal monologue that we have with ourselves. What are you saying to yourself in those times? Are you saying, oh my God, it's my fault. I did this wrong. Are you saying that could have gone better? What could I think do say differently that might have helped it go better? Yeah. Those are two very common ways that we might talk to ourselves after an event like that and one of them is gonna get you a lot further than the other.
0: Yeah, thinking about crossing from the individual to like system space, I feel similarly that working in medicine, no matter where you're working, there is going to be some complicity in oppressive systems, some sort of way that your patients are not being served the best way you think that they can be. So I know you've worked, you just mentioned a community health center, you worked in an academic center, you worked in a psychiatric hospital, how do you personally navigate frustrating systems when you're identifying the harm and the good? And then figuring out which harms you can personally limit and which goods you can personally amplifying for the people who don't really have a choice but to be stuck in these systems?
1: So I thought a lot about this question, and I've I've had a few different jobs. You know, I worked in rural community health, I worked in urban academic medicine, I worked in suburban private practice slash residency, and, you know, now I work in the state psychiatric hospital system. And over those job transitions, you know, I finished residency, so I left, and, you know, I I finished my service commitment and felt like I really wanted to do more teaching, so I transitioned, and family reasons, we had to move, but this, this last transition was one that I left because it was time to leave. Yeah. And all all of that had to do with system issues. Yeah. And as I've kind of looked back on that, I think that there were a couple phases that at least I went through. So when I first took the job, it was like right up my alley. I was responsible for the medical student education programs in the mm-hmm. department, and I saw patients. Mm-hmm. So I had teaching, I had a little bit of admin, and then I had my clinical. Yeah. As time went on, I ended up with more responsibilities. So looking at graduate medical education programs, not just medical student. And then I asked to be allowed to have some responsibility for some of the clinical programs. Yeah. So, you know, you're kind of moving up that management ladder And I went into it with just tons of optimism, and I had a very structured approach that I learned from some coursework I did postgraduate about organizations and organizational change. and
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, very organized. You, You look at the problem, you decide if it's structural, political... Uh, symbolic or human resources and then you break it down by frame and then you work on developing strategies to help fix it based on the underlying root cause and then you build your coalitions gather the resources anyway I spent a lot of time trying to do that work without very much positive impact and so then I kind of changed my mode and, and my mode became okay Not really having a lot of effect at making bigger, broader, systematic change. So now that I'm kind of up at this middle level, what is my task? I thought it was going to be to be a change agent, but what it then became was a protector. Yeah. So kind of the umbrella where, I guess, I picture telephone lines Uh with the birds on them, and there's Uh one bird at the top, and then all the birds are under, and the bird at the top is like holding out its wings, trying to prevent all the rain from getting on all the birds. But anyway... So I felt like I really went into protection mode, trying to prevent systematic struggles from negatively impacting, you know, the people that I was serving in charge of Mm -hmm. that were below me on that.
0: Telephone line.
1: And that can become exhausting. Yeah. (laughs) And so I tried to do that for a while and really got to the point where was really questioning, like, what am I doing here? What energy am I getting yeah. from this versus what energy am I giving to it or what energy is it taking from me? Yeah. And so I got to the point where I realized that it wasn't good mm-hmm. for me, the balance there. And so I, I really reflected on what were the next steps, what are the options? And really, in my head, it's either go big try to get promoted, try to be higher up the chain so that maybe you could be more impactful or have more ability to influence decisions. Or kind of go smaller and say, let me think about what really is the core of what I want to do? What is really the core of what I think I have to give? Yeah. And the going big or higher wasn't an option for many reasons. And so I thought, you know, what did I start here doing? It was teaching and seeing patients. Yeah. And so I decided, okay, that's where I need to go. I need to go more micro. Mm-hmm. I need to make my system smaller so that I can get back to doing the pieces of my work that I felt I really could have the most impact, which is teaching and patient care. And so that's where I am now at the same time, there are certainly other options for other people, right? So one option would have been I could have gone into advocacy activism work. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like that was a particular strength of mine. And another option would be you could go more into policy politics. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of options. The one that seemed best to me was going smaller. And what I found is that where I am now, it is a much smaller system. Mm-hmm. It's a a system that seems to be open and receptive mm-hmm. to, to ideas. So I feel like I have been able to have more of an impact at that system level with some ideas and with committee work that actually leads to outcomes and change rather than more talking yeah. around tables. So it actually had opportunity for me to be engaged in some decision making, even though I don't have a position, a title, a role other than primary care doctor. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I'm in a good place for me.
0: I think that makes sense. And not that these buckets are discreet, but it sounded like when you started your previous job, you first came in really focusing on the good that you could do and thinking that you could make big sweeping change to really improve systems that would affect a lot, a lot of people. And when it became apparent that the system was not so receptive, you kind of moved toward identifying harms you could limit for the people around you. And then when it turned out that doing all of that took more than you had to give, then you switched gears and went back to the basics. And I think there's something to be said about, for me, this imaginary dichotomy between making systems change and having individual impact. And I think one of the biggest reasons why I went into family medicine was because I knew this was the one thing that I could do that had systems change while also allowing me to have really real individual relationships with a lot, a lot of people. I think when I was much, much younger in middle school, I thought, well, it seems like the only way you can make real changes is to be a politician or to be a CEO or someone really, really high up. But when you do that, you're so out of touch with everyone outside of your bubble that it's kind of hard to tell if that change is real to anyone except for people who see you. And I worry about that all the time of like, okay, I'm doing all this work, but outside of what I can see, has it changed anything? I don't know. And so I, th- I think it takes a lot of insight to be able to look at the work you're doing and, I mean, one, realize whether or not you're taking more from yourself than is sustainable, but also seeing whether or not your energy is going toward any real meaningful change.
1: It can be challenging, too, because you never know. Just like with patient care,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I might have a conversation or an interaction with a patient and I might think it fell flat. I might think it went nowhere. And, you know, that patient may take that away and come back, you know, a month, six months later, mm-hmm. having really been impacted. And I just didn't know it. Similarly, in organizations, there is always the chance that even though it appears like no one's listening to you mm-hmm. or it appears like you're not having an impact, that was another piece, right? The time frame for change yeah. in a big convoluted system became intolerable to me. yeah. So it depends on where your patience level is with that, too. So I think you just have to try to put what you believe to be positive thoughts and energy out there. And then, you know, it may be the time, it may be the place, it may not be, maybe it'll be later, et cetera. But I don't think any effort in service of others is ever wasted, right? Yeah. It just might not get where you want it to get in the time frame that you want it to get there.
0: Yeah, like it might not make you feel as restored as you would want putting your energy into something you care about. And it is important to underscore that what fills your cup is different for each person. So for me, I really struggle to see myself in any formal position of leadership because the amount of energy it takes for me to do bureaucratic work is so much. I have a capstone research project And I just could not bear the thought of, quote unquote, real research with all the steps to make it validated. And I respect all of that, but I just could not bring myself to do it. And so I switched gears, did socially engaged art, slapped a pre and post survey on it and got permission to use that as, quote unquote, research. Because that was the only way I could envision myself going through with a project like that. And the idea of quality improvement, sometimes you use it to actually just fund something you know is going to help. Like, will having an onsite psychologist improve our patient's mental health? Like, of course it will. But if you frame it in research and you go through the grant writing and all of that, you can make real impactful change on your patients. But that method is just not for me. I think it's so important to be able to maintain relationships with everyone in all the different parts of change making in the system and out of the system. You know, some people can be the CEO of a health system, and that's not me, and that's okay.
1: Yes, that's okay, (laughs) for sure. And it does become hard because there are some things, like you started hinting at, that maybe don't need a randomized control trial study. Yeah. Right? So preparing for this interview, I was just looking around on the internet, and I was looking at the... um, I think it's Bloomberg, or somebody does this global health index yeah. of countries that are healthy. Yeah. And then Forbes did this happiest countries index. <laughs> and, you know, half of the countries in the top 10 for health are also in the top 10 for happiness. Yeah. And, you know, of course the U.S. is, you know, not in the top 10 for either of them. Uh-huh. Um, you know, some things just make sense. Yeah. And I think trying to pursue those things is good and admirable. But one of the things that is always a challenge for me is this idea that people use science to say we need to do something,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: even though they're drawing invalid conclusions and making invalid inferences based on the science. Yes. So it's a challenge, right? You know, we've talked about that in other settings, the tension between patient-centered approaches Mm -hmm. and evidence-based medicine approaches. Mm And what do you do when, at least at first blush, it looks like those two approaches are not aligned, especially, which again, I guess is another place for nuance, right? It's not, you don't use evidence-based medicine instead of patient-centered medicine. You don't use patient-centered medicine instead of vice versa. Yeah, yeah. You have to find a way to integrate the two pieces when they don't necessarily align. If we were dealing with widgets and gears and things, it would be much easier to have rules and standards and guidelines that would apply more consistently, but we're not. We're dealing with people, and it's always going to be messy, and I think that's maybe how you started this. Yeah, yeah. The other issue about good and bad and right and wrong is, you know, those are all value judgments.
0: Yes. Right? Yeah.
1: I can't make a value judgment for someone. Yeah. Because I may not share their values.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So there are certainly standards of care. There are certainly guidelines that are effective and efficient. There are certainly better and worse ways to approach certain problems when you're, you know, looking at downstream outcomes, But at the same time, I think that's a red flag. Anytime we're talking about good or bad or better or worse or right or wrong, I think we're very much at risk of being biased by our own positions. You know, is an A1C of 6.5 better than an A1C of 10.5? Well, better at what? Better at preventing microvascular or macrovascular complications or, you know... Better or worse at putting someone into medical bankruptcy or, you know, it, yeah. it, it's just, I don't know, assumptions that we make that probably need to be challenged more than they are.
0: Yeah. I think that can be broadened out in general too, right? Where it's like, obviously, as our role as physicians in a patient-physician relationship, we have, of course, our own ideas of what direction we want to move in. And the patients are coming to us because we have that direction. But that doesn't mean that we have to work exclusively off that mindset that we are correct in the same way that in activism work and stuff obviously i have my values and my general direction is going to be according to my values but trying to be more open to what other people's lived experiences are and if i can't necessarily incorporate that understanding into my current understanding being able to hold both of them at once and that That's hard, but I think it's really important in the work that we do if we want to be effective clinicians.
1: Right. You know, I've said this frequently to myself and I think to other people, too, but they never taught me how to negotiate in medical school, but I negotiate all the time with patients. Yes. Right? You know, it's like, okay, this is what I think the best possible outcome would be based on my knowledge and my values, but... Do you agree? Do you not agree? You know what's the best possible outcome in your scenario, and do you understand mine? Do I understand yours? And where can we agree? We jointly want to go together. Yeah. So I guess maybe that's my second pet peeve about medical education. Not only do we train you that there's always a the right answer, which is completely false most of the time, we don't teach you the skills that you need. Yeah. Um, in terms of managing relationships. Yeah. And negotiating. What's the BATNA? The best alternative to a negotiated agreement. I don't know. There's all these.
0: BATNA. I'll have to look that up.
1: B-A-T-N-A maybe. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I feel like I'm living in an even grayer world than I used to be. Because within mental health, not only do we have the personal and societal values, beliefs, stigma that may be associated with that, we have issues of capacity. Yeah. If someone is symptomatic from their mental illness to the point that we as physicians deem that they don't have capacity yeah. to make informed decisions. Yeah, Whew. Talk about a weighty position to be in, uh, which is why, of course, it always takes more than one clinician to make that decision. But there's a lot of gray there.
0: Yeah. I mean, of course, there's so much gray, but I've been in circumstances where it feels like the question of capacity is grayer than it needs to be, where if you ask a patient what they want, what their desires are, where their values lie, and what they want to do is not in line with what they want. For example, I had a patient who really wanted her baby to live and she was under the thought that she had to cut the baby out right this instant or else the baby wouldn't live. And the idea was like, oh, we're telling a woman what to do with her body, but she, <laughs> she was having an episode of psychosis Her values and our values were the same. We wanted both mom and baby to live. And so for us to, you know, kind of put her under a TDO and help her move through this episode, I felt was very much in line with what the patient would want. And of course, there are instances that are much more gray than that. But I think listening to our patients, even when they're in a psychotic episode, is very valuable because often their values don't change. Yeah, that's a great
1: point.
0: So as we kind of near the end of this episode, do you have any advice for soon-to-be residents about how we can get better or even good at holding space for nuance, even when we're super, super tired and the reflex is to lean into binaries?
1: Sure. Um, So I I always have opinions and advice, hence the no subtle bone in my body. But I, and I just said, but, that's very interesting. (laughs) with the advice I'm about to give which is listen for the butts. Yeah. Right so I have gotten on this soapbox lately with my family mm-hmm. and with myself about never using the word but. Mm-hmm. For people of my generation we grew up with you know conjunction junction schoolhouse uh-huh. rock right? right. And so in thinking about this I went back and listened, and probably anybody who's listening to this of my generation can sing it themselves, but Conjunction Junction talks about how we use conjunctions in language to Mm -hmm. bridge or connect phrases, clauses, put them together. And, you know, I went back and listened, and some of the examples they use for the use of but are dirty, but happy, poor, but honest, sad, but true.
0: Oh my gosh. Okay. Isn't that horrible? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And so, you know, the examples that I had in my head are as a healthcare system, we tell trainees Mm -hmm. and providers, physicians, that, you know, you have to put your patients first, that Mm -hmm. altruism is a critical part of professionalism within healthcare. And then we say, but you also have to practice self care. Yeah. All right. And with patients, you know, you might hear colleagues talking about, oh, my gosh, such and such patient. You know, they understand that the blood pressure needs to be controlled. It's a risk factor for heart disease and stroke, but they just won't take their medicine. (laughs) Right. And so every time I hear the word but now it just like raises my hackles, not every time, but most of the time, because what it does is it contradicts, negates or devalues the first part of what was said. Mm hmm. It's so frustrating to me now when I hear it because it doesn't hold those two things together, Mm -hmm. right? So, yes, we need to put our patient's interest first. And we need to be able to take care of ourselves. It's not a but. But Mm -hmm. means the second one has priority or the first one is diminished. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm making sense. but You are. Yeah. So yes, the patient does have the cognitive knowledge to know that high blood pressure uncontrolled is a bad thing and they're not taking their medicine regularly. Okay. So let's hold both of those things and then try to figure out. One thing you said earlier that really struck me is this idea of they don't have to be integrated. Like, mm-hmm. I don't have to take someone's value that's different from mine mm-hmm. and integrate it with mine mm-hmm. as a physician, but I have to be able to hold them together at the same time and then putting the patient's interest first, try to figure out how I'm going to fulfill my professional obligation to help them. Yeah. So my advice would be listen for the butts and convert it to and in your head and then say the sentence back to yourself and see how different it feels and how different that makes you want to engage going forward. Don't expect yourself to be perfect at this. Uh You know, I just told you I kind of sucked at it as a resident and it wasn't until I was two or three years into practice that I started to be able to do it pretty frequently and pretty well. And I'm still challenged by it and certain situations or on certain days or with certain things that maybe I feel more passionate, more strongly, or get worked up about it. And it becomes harder at those times. So give yourself a break. Be kind to yourself. I guess those would be the two main things.
0: Yeah. That reminds me of this talk I saw when I was in college by Loretta Ross. And she mentions this concept of problematic allies where you don't wanna be fighting with your whole heart against someone who's actually on your side. And thinking about that both in social justice work and like you said, you don't need to integrate your values with someone else's and they don't need to integrate your values, but knowing that you're on the same side and with your patients, knowing that, you know, maybe I am a problematic ally to this person's health and this person's a problematic ally to my goals as a physician, but we're all on the same side. And allowing myself to acknowledge that I am problematic can maybe give me that grace to be like, I'm tired today, so I'm going to use butt today. (laughs) So I've been asking all of my guests one last question. As we work to be healers and to be healed, both as medical professionals but also human, what does healing look like for you?
1: When I tried to think about this kind of what does healing look like for me, I really couldn't quite get there. And so I shifted it into my head and I said, well, what does healing feel like Mm -hmm. to me? And there were some words that I resonated with in thinking about it that way. So I'll just read the list. Caring, alleviating, harmony, peace, sharing, calm, adapting, balance, those were some of the things that i was kind of feeling when i was thinking about this aspirational goal of being a healer i think that what it also means is that i find a way to invest myself in the real time condition of another person in a way that attempts to help them feel heard without you know depleting myself Yeah. So that's, I guess, where the balance comes in. There's a lot of times in family medicine where there isn't necessarily a specific disease to prescribe for or condition to refer. And so when I find myself getting frustrated or challenged or disappointed in myself for not doing better or more, and this, I guess, would be another piece of advice, which is I just want the patient to feel feel better when they leave the office than when they came into the office, Yes, and that might mean physically, it might mean mentally, it might mean emotionally, but if, if the patient just feels better in some way, shape, or form when they leave the office than when they came in, some days that's good enough.
0: I think that makes complete sense. Something that I really believed when I came in to medical school was that I wanted to be someone who believed in people, that when people left the office, if nothing else, they knew that I believed in them and that I believed in their ability to grow and to heal from whatever they're going through to survive whatever they're going through. And then I forgot about it because residency cycles is kind of involved, I guess. I haven't really been thinking about that, but hearing you say that has reminded me that A lot of healing comes from how we feel, regardless of what the organic material happenings are. And I think it's loftier than it sounds to aim for every patient to leave your care feeling better than when they came in.
1: Oh, I I know it doesn't (laughs) happen. I'm not deluding myself that there's some magical formula about a visit with Dr. Crossman. It is an aspirational goal and The way I think about that is something that I'm always striving for, but not always achieving.
0: Yeah. But what a good grounding measure, though. Like, if you're in the middle of a 15-minute appointment and you're on, like, minute 13 and you're not getting anywhere, and then you're like, I don't know where to go from there, just remind myself, like, okay, well, in the last two to three minutes, what can I do for this patient right now, emotionally, psychologically, physically, And just take that one step at a time. Because the other good thing about family medicine is you can see your patient again. And what a blessing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Just as I think about this time talking with you, this concept of relationship resurfaces for me and the knowledge that a lot of the repletion, not depletion, of my energy comes from the relationships as well. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, the relationship isn't a one-way street, right? So yeah. if I go back to Ballant, Michael Ballant has a metaphor of a, a mutual investment company for the doctor-patient relationship. Mm-hmm. We're both going to put stuff into it. We're both going to take stuff out of it. And, you know, if we're investing with a shared goal in mind, then sometimes I'm going to have to put a hell of a lot more in yeah. than the patient. But that's not viable as a long-term yeah. relationship. So I guess that mutual investment goes back to what we we're talking about D P C and HMOs yeah, and all yeah. sorts of stuff. If we're working together and we can agree on what we're working toward, you know, I, I think that's It's enough. It's enough, yeah. Right?
0: Yeah. I'm happy to hear you say that. And it gives me a lot to think about. <laughs> all right. Well, Steve, would you like to say bye to our listeners?
1: Yes. Goodbye, good luck, enjoy, and uh, (laughs) thanks for letting me be here.
0: All right. Bye. Bye. I will never forget sitting on the sidewalk outside of a Michael's on the phone with Dr. Crossman, stressed out of my mind about submitting residency applications, and he affirmed for me that the sanitized version of my personal statement was really not that great. He encouraged me to submit the messy and nuanced and human version I had been talked out of by others, because that's the thing. The mess and seemingly conflicting truths is what makes us human, and allowing ourselves the space to acknowledge all of that helps us appreciate others and our relationships so much more. In this conversation, we discuss different ways to enact change with nuance in mind, particularly working with many others who each have different approaches to a problem. Knowing that no individual approach needs to be perfect, as long as all of your approaches are synergistic with one another. Whether you climb the leadership ladder, or go into advocacy, or politics and policy, or scale back to be very intentional with the care you give to your patients, you can make a change. As for holding space for nuance in our everyday life and work, some specific tools we reviewed include first, striving to be comfortable and saying, I don't know, but let's figure it out together. Second, interrogating the always nevers and buts. And third, speculating about as many different possible explanations for any given situation and acknowledging that any one or multiple of those may be true. Remember that you don't need to incorporate someone else's truth or values into your own, but you can certainly hold both as true as you work with others to decide the next best step, whether it be a patient or fellow community organizers. Particularly for an individual's health, it is vital to see patient-centered care as applied evidence medicine instead of diametrically opposed concepts. Because truly, no healthcare decision by a patient has an inherent moral value. There is no good or bad or right or wrong, only decisions that align or don't align with what's important to your patients. This stuff is really hard, so dear listeners and future Victoria, remember to be gentle with yourself and know that each of us hold the power to do better. At the same time, your energy is limited, so use it in ways for systemic change and or individual impact that feel fulfilling to you. And when in doubt, turn to your relationships to replete your energy. Feeling connected to one another is where we heal. Make sure to have a listen to the next episode about radical acceptance. And then join me one last time next week when I talk to Jazz Johnson, a fellow fourth-year medical student with the biggest heart, as we talk about doing our somethings with trust. Let's stay connected. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at V-M-D-W-I-P. And special thanks to our podcast cover art, as always, to my partner, Miguel Alt, who can be found on Instagram at Altarcana. That's A-L-T-A-R-C-A-N-A. And so much gratitude to my dear friend, Joe Che, for composing all the music for this podcast. This information will also be in the description of this pod episode. And hey, thanks for listening.